this is the part where I'm supposed to be lowered from the ceiling in that, you know, that Tom Cruise pose. But when I suggested that to the deacons, they were really excited about doing it, and then I got a little nervous about those guys holding the rope as I dangled down. If you are of my generation or younger, you are familiar with that theme music and the idea of Mission Impossible because of a series of Tom Cruise movies, which um, started about 20 years ago, believe it or not. Um, If you are older than I am, then you may remember the TV show that ran from 1966 to 1973 called Mission Impossible, where if you remember the opening credits, they would strike a match and then the match uh, and light a fuse and the fuse would sort of wind its way through the credits while that familiar music played. Which, by the way, I'm going to start using every time I enter a room from now on. So when I, when I start class, I'm just going to start playing that, see what happens. If none of this is familiar to you, then what's important for you to know is that each Mission Impossible movie or episode begins with, at some point, the re- revelation of the mission. And the tape recording or the CD or whatever is playing the mission has some typical lines on it, some pretty standard lines. Your mission, if you choose to accept it, and then the mission would be explained. And then there was the disclaimer. If you are caught, the secretary will disavow all knowledge of your existence. And then it ends with the famous, this message will self-destruct in five seconds at which time the little cassette recorder would like make that sound and like smoke would pour out of it. The mission being offered each time was impossible. It was, in fact, mission impossible. The group of guys doing the mission were the MI team, the mission impossible team. And yet, somehow, every movie, every episode... The bad guy's caught, the world is saved, and they're ready for their next impossible mission. Which, of course, begs the question, is it really impossible? It seems like it should be called mission pretty, pretty hard. Mission not all that easy. That's what I would have called it. Mission not all that easy. However, we accept these things about our world... And that's partly because we don't use the word impossible correctly either. I, on occasion, have heard a student say about a test that I've given, that, Mr. Bino, was impossible. And though I cannot say this, my mind is going, I bet for somebody it wasn't impossible. Somebody did fine on it. What you're saying is not that it was impossible, but that it was really difficult or that because of your study habits, it was impossible for you. (laughs) These are things teachers do not say, but we think. You may say, it's impossible to get the weeds out of my garden. Well, it's not impossible. It's just really hard. You might say, it's impossible for us to get there on time. That's not impossible. It's just really difficult. There is an old saying that my grandmother used to jokingly say about my grandfather, he's impossible. (laughs) And so as we move into the question of this sermon series, we're going to ask this question. 
Can the church bridge the culture without losing its soul? Can the church bridge the culture without losing its soul? And we're going to decide, we're going to try to decide, is that a possible mission? Is it an impossible mission as in not at all possible, like the actual word of impossible? Does it mean impossible as in it's really difficult? Or is there some other answer altogether? So that is where we are heading, looking at the question, mission impossible? Can the church bridge the culture without losing its soul? To tackle this question, we're going to study seven cities and seven churches in those cities from the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. But before chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation comes chapter 1 of Revelation. I spent all week on that. I worked it out. Chapter 1 comes first. And today we're going to start orienting ourselves to the message to these churches and to these cities by looking at Revelation chapter 1. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 together. If you have your Bibles, you can grab them and look at verses 1 through 11. It'll also be on the screen. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must take place. And made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches, that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Revelation is a letter. It's a letter to seven churches in seven different cities 
in what was then known as Asia Minor, what is now known as Turkey. The letter, as some of you know, gets really interesting as the chapters move on. Beasts, dragons, four horsemen, battles, the final battle, a new heaven, a new earth. But all of that, all of that is introduced to us in verses 1 through 3 with this. It is a revelation for the servants of Christ. It is a revelation for the church. That all who read it, who hear it, and follow it will be blessed. And so we are in a place where we should be anticipating a blessing of God because of our time in this book. That's the promise. All who read, hear, and spend time in it will be blessed. Even in our difficult circumstances, even in the challenges that face us, we look to Christ, we look to a greater revealing of his person, and we look to be blessed. John himself was in difficult circumstances when he wrote this letter. He was, if you look in verse 9, exiled to the island of Patmos, which was right off the coast of Asia Minor. Why? On account of the word. Because of the work he was doing for the Lord and for these churches, he was punished and exiled, separated from his people, separated from these churches, separated from community. And it's under these difficult circumstances that while he's on the island on a Sunday, on a a worship day, he hears a voice like a trumpet behind him, write this and send it. Send it to seven churches. These seven churches are mentioned in verse 4, but they're named here in verse 11. Send it to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And if we look at a map of Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, you'll see those cities form a sort of circuit. The order of the letters, the order of the churches is probably the order in which a messenger would have actually delivered the letter. From Patmos, which you see is the island, Ephesus would have been the port city and the the cycle and the circle of cities, um, the circuit that a messenger would have traveled. And we'll we'll look closely um, at each of these cities, but I want to mention this right at the start. Here's what one archaeologist who's studied these cities has said. The great circular road that bound together the most populous, wealthy, and influential part of the province. It's hard for us when we think of ancient cities. The only thing we can picture is like broken down cities with a few Roman columns left. We need to reimagine these cities. These were large, thriving cities. Real cities. Can I say that? I mean, real cities. Like, don't think of little Middle Eastern villages. These were thriving, large, important cities. And there were cities that had a church in them. And there were cities that had a church in them that was trying to navigate the church that they were establishing and the culture they were living in. In short, these people were asking the same question. 
How do we bridge the culture and the church? What are we supposed to do? What is the connection between the two? So these churches in these cities in some ways are not like us. But in other ways, they are exactly like us. They were trying to navigate highly populated, highly artistic, highly unjust, highly racist, highly sexist, highly complicated cultures with the gospel. In that way, they were just like us. And therefore, when John says, listen to these words, hear them, we can read and understand them as being a message to us that matters. The letters to these seven churches matter to us. It's not lost on most commentators that there are seven churches. And in the book of Revelation, the numbers are hugely symbolic. And even the number seven throughout Scripture is hugely symbolic. It represents completeness and wholeness. In other words, these seven churches together are kind of an eternal picture of church in sort of its different forms and nuances. This is sort of the the picture of churches, for better or for worse. One commentator says that these seven churches represent, quote, the local churches of all ages and of all lands. The message to these churches matters to our church, to our campus here in Wilmington. They're not unlike the letters that Paul wrote. He wrote letters. Galatia got a letter. Rome got a letter. Even Ephesus got a letter. And those messages are for us, as is this one. The message matters to us. Why would John be told, write what you see, if it was not to deliver the message? They matter, too, because they are a revelation. The first words of the book of Revelation is a revelation. Hence the name, Revelation. It's not, by the way, Revelations, which is a little bit of a misspeak that people have. It's one revelation. That is the Latin word, Revelation. The Greek word is apocalypsis, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now, because of what happens later in the book, we've taken the word apocalypse and we've sort of narrowed its meaning or widened its meaning maybe to mean sort of this final battle there's some big apocalyptic battle and we call that the end the end of the world is the apocalypse the actual word apocalypse means revealing or unveiling and so that first sentence is the unveiling of jesus christ to the church to the servants It's an unveiling. It's a revealing. Revelation is not a bad word. It's a revelation, a revealing. Though I like the word unveiling of Jesus Christ. There's a strange thing that you can find on YouTube. Well, well, there's lots of strange things I'm sure you can find on YouTube. (laughs) There's one strange thing, and you may have stumbled across it, and maybe one of you actually recorded yourself doing this. I don't know. But there's this thing called unboxing. This is when a person records themselves opening something for the first time. So you buy a new PS4 and you video yourself opening it for the first time and you post it and people apparently watch 
Now, I want to be clear. This is different than unwrapping. This isn't like Christmas where they don't know what's in the wrap. They know what it is. They went to the store. They bought an iPhone. They put it in a bag. They put the bag in their car. They drove back to their house. They got the bag out. They got the box out. And they're looking at a box with an iPhone 10 on it. They know what's in the box already. And yet, they film themselves unboxing. It's surreal. I don't get it. However, there is something to it that I think relates. Go with me on this. There is an excitement to unveiling, even though they already know what's inside. Even though they have an inkling of what it is, it's different to have it in your hand, to have it as your own, to take ownership of it, to sort of take it in as yours is different. There's something to that that people like the excitement of that, and they record it. They record the excitement of that first moment where they get to open the PlayStation or um, the phone for the first time. Even though they know what's inside. It's a kind of unveiling. It's, it's a kind of apocalypse. This letter of John, this apocalypse of John, was written to people who knew Christ. They had established the church. They were in the church. They were suffering oftentimes for Christ. And so when John says, here is a unveiling, it's a little bit like they already know what's in the box. And yet, there is an excitement to knowing that there's going to be something new when you own it and receive it in a new way. And I say this only because, as a person who grew up in church, and a person who's worked with people through the church context, I know that sometimes church can feel like I've been there I've done that. We can sometimes feel like another Bible study, another discipleship group. Sometimes we can even feel like another church service. And I don't think, I don't think we mean to feel that way, but it kind of happens. Or worse, you've been in a church where it's been unhealthy and it's been hurtful. And your association with church and with the growth of the church and the goodness of the church has been skewed and scarred. And so when you think about hearing more about Jesus, you just have this part of you that that there's pain in that. And certainly, the original audience would have been struggling with the pain of unexpected persecution for following Christ. But I think the message still is for us because it is an unveiling of Christ, maybe in a way that you have not seen before. And so I encourage you to let your spirit unbox Jesus again. To listen to the apocalypse, the unveiling of who Christ is, in the words of Revelation. Even even John, as he receives the initial revelation in the first few verses, he himself, this is John. John the Apostle, who walked with Jesus, who prayed with Jesus, who stood at the foot of the cross with Jesus, who ate with Jesus after the resurrection. This guy knew Jesus. And yet when the apocalypse began, by verse 5, he's already broken into a song of worship. He's already been overwhelmed by the newness of what he's seeing in Christ. 
And he breaks into this sort of doxology to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. But that's not enough. He, can, he almost prays again. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and every, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. This burst of praise from John at this new unveiling of Christ from a guy who knew Christ quite well. But he's unboxing Christ again. In this little doxology, there are two core identities of the followers of Christ that are brought out. Look back down and see if you can see them. There's two things Christ has done for us. He loves us, and he freed us from our sins. And that leads to two identities that we have as followers of Christ. We are a kingdom, and we are a priesthood. We are a kingdom, and we are priests. Two acts of Christ lead to two identities to Christ's followers. And these actions and identities, I think serve to help us know what the church's mission is supposed to be. It helps to clarify our mission. What is it that we are trying to offer people through Christ? What is it that we're trying to share when we think of bringing Christ into the culture? What is it that we're bringing? And I think it's right here. The message we bring is Christ is Lord and Christ is Savior. Christ is Lord, and Christ is Savior. What does it mean that we are in a kingdom, except that we have a king? Verse 8, he's the Alpha, and he's the Omega. He is the Almighty. Christ is Lord. And what does it mean to be a priest, but that we operate in the holy temple of God, where sacrifices are made, confession is made, and redemption is received? Christ is Savior. Christ is Lord. I think this is the gospel message and therefore the church's mission. We declare Christ Savior and Lord. That's the mission. We declare Christ Savior as Lord. And this isn't new to John. If you think back to Romans 10, Paul says, if you confess with your heart, Jesus is Lord, Lordship, and I'm sorry, confess with your mouth. I'm getting confused. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, salvation, you will be saved. Christ is Savior. Christ is Lord. And our mission as a church is to communicate this truth, to disciple people in this truth, to spread and grow in this truth. When John talked last week about growing, spreading, and maturing, we are not trying to grow, spread, and mature beyond that message. We're beyond that mission. We don't say, we've got the Jesus the Savior thing. We've moved on from that. No, no, no. We don't move on from it. That is the thing we're growing in. That is the thing we're maturing in. That is the thing we are spreading. That Christ is Savior and Christ is Lord. Before you decide that message is perhaps a little too obvious, I want to 
use a term, a phrase that uh, Pastor uh, John Ortberg, you may have heard of him, he's a pastor in California, has written a bunch of books, really excellent teacher. He uses this phrase called a shadow mission. I'm going to use this a little different than he does. He says a shadow mission is essentially this. It is the mission that you've begun to follow thinking it's your actual mission. But it's actually a degree off from your real mission. But the trouble is, when something's a degree off, you move slowly away from your mission until before you know it, you're miles away. Look at the screen here for a second. You'll see two lines. One line is just a little tiny bit off. It's literally one degree off. Which, when you look at it there, you, you might think, oh, it's fine. And if, and if the TVs weren't there showing you the line, you might not even see it. <laughs> but when you expand out, and this isn't very far down the graph. This is very, not very far at all down the graph. Look how you start to be able to see the difference. If you can't see it, let's put a couple of Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible. There, they got, there he is. See, uh, that's Tom. See the difference in the space above his head? In just that short amount of time, one degree gets further and further and further away. And as all of you know, as the, if you go miles this way, you will miss your target by miles and miles and miles because of being one degree off. Churches chase shadow missions. Good things, good ideas, good dreams, good hopes... But when the shadow mission becomes the mission, before you know it, you're miles away from the truth. Let me give you an example. Let's say we decided we wanted to be a church that's the most welcoming church that Wilmington, Delaware has ever seen. I mean, we want to knock it out of the park. So we get our greeters t-shirts that say, greeter. And on the back, it says, welcome. And we offer free coffee, free prizes, door prizes. We have the friendliest people ever. And we start getting the reputation of being the most welcoming church in the city. And people start coming because we are so welcoming. You can imagine someone saying, you know... I think it would be really welcoming if we, if we sang a few like classic rock songs during church. Because people don't know your worship songs, but they would know these songs. So let's start to do that. Let's throw in a few classic rock songs to become more welcoming. Okay? So you come in one day and we're singing some classic rock song. But then someone suggests, you know... The Bible's hard to read. It's not very welcoming. It's a little little hard sometimes. Revelation, apocalypsis, that's that's a little tricky. Maybe the teachings could start being more things about like, you know, being being really good good people of of the city. You know, maybe the sermons could be a little more like, you know, five healthy ways to, um, you know, uh, raise a child. And maybe you could just kind of take your information from like Oprah because people are comfortable with Oprah. Now, I'm, being, I'm exaggerating, right? But if you've been a part of the church for 20 years, I'm not exaggerating much. 
But what's happened there? What's happened there is that the mission of the gospel was replaced by this one degree off of being welcoming, and that will mean that it will be miles away. Eventually, you're miles away. And you didn't mean for it. You weren't trying to leave the gospel. We weren't trying to leave the gospel. But if your goal becomes being welcoming, then the gospel is going to be lost so that we can be more welcoming. And there's a million ways we could do it. I could have picked any example. We could say, let's have the best coffee. Let's have the best lobby. Let's have the best building. Let's have the best um, life groups. Let's have the best blank. You fill in the blank. If it's not the gospel, it's a degree off. And eventually we'll be miles away. So I'm going to tip my hand here of what's to come in future sermons because I want you to start thinking about it. If we make our mission to bridge the culture, then we've already lost. Our mission is not to bridge the culture. That is a shadow mission. Our mission is to declare Christ Savior and declare Christ Lord. Now, do we want to bridge the, the, the culture? Absolutely. Do we want to figure out the ways to bring that message to our culture? Absolutely. Do we need to figure out ways to speak that in a way that's heard by our culture? Absolutely. But you can imagine the direction a church would go if their number one mission was to be culturally relevant. You give up the gospel. And so we're not going to do that. We're going to avoid the shadow mission that says bridging the, goal, bridging the culture is our mission. Our mission is to declare Christ Savior and to declare Christ Lord. And we will try to do that in a way that our culture will receive. But if our culture, which it does, will says to us, we don't like that message we don't say, oh, well, let us know how we can tweak it to better bridge to you. That is a shadow mission that's one degree off and will end up miles away. I'm going to suggest to you as we study these churches, there are seven churches, as you already know, five of them receive admonitions or critiques, really even just really strong words from the Lord about sort of the way that they've gone off track. And I'm going to suggest for each of those churches a shadow mission that they've accepted accidentally as their real mission. All shadow missions, I think, churches today, and that we are susceptible, because as you saw from that first slide, when you first start one degree off, it doesn't feel like it's that far away. And it's not necessarily even a bad thing. I want us to be welcoming, right? It's not a bad thing, but when that becomes the thing, you lose the gospel, which many of these churches had, to the point, by the way, to which Jesus said, you are so far off now that I'm, he threatens to remove himself from the church. In a later church, he threatens to spit them out of his mouth. So the Lord is not sort of casual about this one degree off. It's pretty important to him. Have we or are we a degree off that will lead us miles away. But before we get there in the weeks to come, I want to close with a challenge to you individually. Because when I say the church can get a degree off, you're the church. Right? It doesn't mean our paperwork is a degree off or what we print is a degree off. It means that the, the spirit and understanding of our people are off. 
And so we need to start with ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, are we, are you, pursuing a shadow mission? Because your mission is no different. Your mission as a Christian is to declare in word and in action and in thought that Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord. This is your mission as well. Because if it's the church's mission, that's what it means to be the church's mission. It's our mission. Are you living a life where Christ ultimately rules you? Or have you let something else begin to rule your vision and your direction? Maybe a good goal. Maybe it's just a degree off. Right? Getting a good job, getting a, having a spouse, getting a house, retiring early. Those are all good things. But if they become the mission, then likely in your heart, you've let something else rule you or you think something else will save you. Listen to that. You're a, degree, you're a degree off because you think that thing will save you or you're allowing that thing to rule you. But we have one ruler, Christ as Lord. And we have one ultimate Savior, Christ as Savior. And so for your consideration today, I want you to think about, is there some shadow mission that has sort of been directing your boat And it's time for you, even today, to confess that and to reassert your commitment to to the mission of declaring Jesus as Lord and Jesus as Savior.